Jack, my pronouns are they and them. I'm an activist for many different things. I'm fat, I'm black, with an Afro-Caribbean heritage, but also British. I'm bisexual, and I've got multiple mental health and disabilities and disorders, and also um, some physical long-term chronic health conditions as well. Um, yeah, I live in the UK. Uh, and I'm one of the co-founders of the support group Bisexuals of Colour, which as far as I know is the only one of its kind in the world. I also produced the only uh, study about bisexual people who are black and of colour as well. Oh yeah, I'm poor. <laughs> I'm working classes in absolutely brassic and broke. <laughs> like if someone were to, I guess, come up to you and just be like, okay, so what is your disorder or how would you, I suppose, describe how your disorder or disorders in this case, like affect you? How would you describe that? Sure. Um, I've got recurrent depression, anxiety, post-traumatic, sorry, complex post-traumatic stress disorder, borderline personality disorder, which they're changing the name in the UK to emotionally unstable personality disorder. I've got dissociative identity disorder and uh, most of these disorders have been going on since I was three. And so that'd be like for the past 47 Yes. Um, something I didn't say in the beginning, of course, is that I'm a survivor of abuse and child abuse, and which kept going on, and even when I stopped being a child. Uh, and oh, and I'm a well, I'm a runaway as well. I ran away from the place I was born and the people who brought me up. I ran away 27 years ago now. I only got the diagnosis as being diabetic. Um, uh, when I ran away, the, yeah, it, I think it's it's no coincidence that yeah. that happened then. But how it all affects me is it leaves me feeling often that I'm just too much, that a lot of medical people can kind of deal with maybe one or two mental health conditions, and but not with five. And especially mm. when there's so much medical racism and medical fat phobia as well, I'm really pushed to the back of the line when it comes to getting help. Mm. I also um, have an eating disorder as well, which I've only recently started trying to get um, some actual medical help for, and that has been proven very difficult. All of these mm. mental health things also affect my physical health with my diabetes and um, high blood pressure. Uh, you know, one of the things they often say um, when, when people are talking about high blood pressure is, I'll try to relax. And you think, yeah, I've got massive amounts of anxiety and PTSD, which drags me back in time to a place where I was in very immediate danger it's really hard mm. to relax then and when one of my six alters alter personalities 
decide to do their own thing which sometimes means going just getting on a bus and going back towards where I used to live and I'll sort of like kind of um, my outside personality will come to the fore and think what the hell am I doing here this bus takes me right back to the place where um, my old family live I do not want to be going there but yeah it's just really hard to relax putting it simply Mm. yeah they all have an effect on my physical health and that's something that a lot of medical people just don't don't get that Mm. it you know it affects things and a lot of lay people and even a lot of medical people see diabetes especially type 2 diabetes as oh you ate too much sugar and so that's why you're diabetic and it's just not if it was the case then I think half the population of the world would be diabetic but um, and so they sort of um, there's a lot of things to do with genetics and trauma when it comes to diabetes and as someone who has an awful lot of trauma to deal with you know, it affects things massively. Mm. Uh, yeah, it, it just feels like I'm fighting on a lot of fronts and that is exhausting mm. just on a daily basis. Yeah, definitely. Because, I mean, from what, I mean, we've experienced, I mean, we, we certainly have less um less mental health and physical health issues on our end and even then it is quite difficult so I can't even imagine how hard it would be for you and for your 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 system your collective to be able to access that help because a lot of the time like you're saying like once a, a lot of medical health professionals whether they be you know just GPs or or like you know mental health professionals it's like you go and see them and typically they expect they're just going to be dealing with a mental health issue that's very straightforward, so to speak, that doesn't have complexities mm-hmm. of, well, obviously with specialists, you know, they're, they're specialising in childhood trauma and trauma disorders, but as in a lot of general psychologists and therapists of the sorts, they aren't equipped enough and they don't know or understand how race plays into it, how certain oh, trauma okay. plays into everything, how physical health issues plays into it all. And a lot of them just had this, very Eurocentric, I suppose, idea of how to deal with things. And when you bring queerness into the mix as well, they kind of are just like, oh, well, have you just tried yoga? Or maybe you should just present (laughs) as the gender that you were born as so it'll make it easier. Uh, And it's like, it's not quite that simple. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. They... um, Medics do not understand non-binariness at all and yeah it's just like don't even buy mentioning unless i've been seeing somebody for a while then just don't bother because they're just not going to understand yeah i was having an assessment for help with and looking at my um mental health uh, medication and eating disorder the other day like two days ago and the woman on the other end, who is a psychologist, um, said when I said that I had dissociative identity disorder, and she, uh, she said, is that just mood swings? And I was just like, 
hell i mean most medics in the uk don't really know about it in the uk it's it's a uh, um formally it's very rare to be formally diagnosed with DID and um, I'm fortunate enough to have been diagnosed so I can hold up my piece of paper and say look a clinical psychologist you know did this went through this flipping questionnaire that lasted five hours over three days and when she actually gave me the diagnosis and she was actually a really nice um, clinical psychologist Mm. I just remember thinking, looking at the door to the to her office and thinking, they're never going to let me out of here. Cause, because mm. all I'd ever heard about DID came from the old, um, the old name for the condition. Oh, of right, yeah. Personality disorder. And I'd only ever heard about that from horrible films. Yeah, it's, it's a pretty rare thing in the UK as far as formal diagnosis goes and in the UK pretty much for any mental health condition if you're not formally diagnosed it's like okay next please thank you next mm. um but in I live in London you know the capital city there's and there's only two people and one organization that specializes in um, dissociative identity disorder mm. yeah you can only get access the the Centre for Dissociative Studies on the NHS if your GP mm. match funds it. And so I tried 13 times in 18 months to get referred and I got turned down every single time. So even though I'm unemployed and on um, welfare benefits, I have to pay to see uh, one of two therapists in London to get help for my DID. Is there such a massive stigma about those who are on welfare payments? Like we ourselves are as well, but like people are just like, oh, you know, why can't these people on welfare payments just get back into the workforce, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, well, you know, it would, like some people, it's, it's still not quite possible, but also things that can make it easier for people is being able to access the help. But if we can't access the help, how do you expect anyone yeah. to be able to get into the workforce for those who would be capable of doing so. The vicious cycle. Mm. And like I worked, I, I was in employment for 14 years. Um, and my last job was in, was six years ago when I had a breakdown um, after being sexually assaulted. Uh, and I just remembered all the times when I was bullied at pretty much every single job that I'd had in 14 years I had five different jobs I'd be bullied so badly that I'd have to leave and then the same thing would happen yeah yeah it was bullying uh, a lot to do with racism mm. but also a lot to do with needing time to go to like just a diabetic appointments which mm. you know I used to get given a really hard time about it about speaking up or speaking back to times when people were racist or ableist to me um you know there's a song diamonds last forever i should have said it called it victimization lasts forever because it's just um 
once you speak up and it's like how dare this black person speak up or talk back to me when I've treated them like trash and mm. that's just like the end of it it's absolutely awful even when I've been volunteering it's been the same sort of thing and there's such a um yeah stigma about mental health um issues but also physical health issues when you actually need the time off to attend your diabetic MOT uh, even if it's like the free monthly one it's mm. you know you're supposed to, you're supposed to work the hours back but mm. just giving a really hard time having to out yourself to your line manager yeah I need mm. this time off because I've got a hospital appointment why you had a hospital appointment three months ago yeah okay but and so even before it gets to things like um, psychotherapy you know it's just that like I wouldn't even bother I would just book the time off myself mm. you know and lose holiday hours and just go and um, also there was a lot of biphobia and I mean there's a lot of queer phobia anyway mm. but when it comes to being bisexual and black oh god I've worked for worked and volunteered for a couple of LGBT plus charities mm. um, and as, it, as is the case for most things when they say that they're LGBT they're just lesbian gay 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 and gay it just it just doesn't help and the thought of going back to work now full-time which I'd have to be because I, I couldn't be able to support myself doing part-time hours mm. the thought of doing that is just it, it just makes me shiver the yeah. thought of having zero support or having a line manager say, you know, you can always talk to me and, you know, we're a supportive workforce. Yeah. No, you're not. No, you're not. You're supportive if someone's got depression, maybe. You hear people talking in a lunchroom or just to each other in, a work, in the workplace and it's so much bigotry. Yeah. And I don't ever want to um, squash down my altars you know, when I hear my voice change halfway through a conversation, yes, I'm aware that people might be, sort of think what's wrong with me or want to ask intrusive questions, but mm. I also don't want to just say, shh, shh, not now, I'm talking. I don't mm. want to be doing stuff like that. And mm. when I got di first got diagnosed, I was reading a lot of things online and most of the people were talking about integration. And I thought, for about a split second oh that would solve a lot of problems and then after that split second it was no I don't actually get to choose that the altars yeah. can choose whether they want to stay or rest for a bit or rest for good yeah, yeah I don't I'm not the one making that decision but mm. there is a lot of pressure internalized ableism and also I know that as a black person as a fat black person that the the chances of me ending up in a secure mental health ward are so much higher than mm. a white person who had DID. Few times that I have been on a secure mental health ward, you'll see maybe one or two white people, but everyone else is black. It really overpopulated. We don't because it's just even harder for us to get therapy because we're not believed because certain things are a white disorder DID mm. being 
very particular at that, but also that I'm seen as dangerous because, mm. you know, black people are inherently... Person. Yeah, dangerous, angry black woman, you know, even though I'm, I don't describe myself as a woman, as soon as people see my tits, it's a woman. So yeah, mm. angry black woman, and I'm gonna go off and hurt somebody or hurt myself. So I must be locked up for my own good, you know. And if I was white, even if I was white and fat, that they'd, I'd be offered a lot of talking therapy before mm. given medication, and mm. I certainly wouldn't be sort of forced into uh, a secure ward for my own good. Mm. I mean, it doesn't help practically that um i don't have any family and the friends that i do have are all in south london um so yeah usually when they hear that i'm on my own then it's like oh we definitely have to take you in because mm. yeah i can't be trusted on my own it's just it's just terrible mm. and, and the mental health services under the nhs I mean, I do, I support the NHS totally when it comes to physical health. But mm. when the NHS comes to mental health services, they can go to hell. They're mm. institutionally racist. The whole system is set up to just make black people victims time after time after time. That we don't fall through the cracks, that we're forcibly pushed through the cracks. We're not mm. understood, and then we're given like a blunt, they're, treat, they're treated with a blunt instrument of like, no, you must get medication because you're a dangerous black person and you must be put on a mental health ward or given a, a home treatment team. And then when you're in a mental health ward or see the home treatment team, it's nothing but racism. Mm. I was seen by a black woman, which is really tragic. Um, one of the times I was um, had a mental health crisis and was suicidal. And mm. when I said, talked to her about how biphobia and queerphobia in general made things so hard for me. And she went <gasps> like the most dramatic kind of staged <gasps> thing. And then she just wouldn't look at me. And another time I had, um, I was encouraged to go to, uh, NHS group support mm. and that was just it was just awful it was just absolutely awful I was um I was talking about racism and yes how it has an adverse effect on my mental health even when other things are going okay internally and the psychologist and um, clinical psychologist said to who's white said to me, oh, I know how it feels. I get discriminated against too because of my accent. And oh I complained about it and was told by a series of other white psychologists that that's not what she meant and just completely gaslighting. And I used to work in a university in the psychology department as a secretary. And mm. the clinical psychologist, the training and hoops that they had to jump through. It's not just, a, it wasn't like a quick degree to get. This mm. was a, you know, a long-term thing. And they'd, I know how much training they have to get 
but to be so to be a clinical psychologist and to be so clueless about racism it it's just it's insulting and these are the people supposed to get me better or supposed to help mm. me get better so it is just like a a vicious cycle yes so many you know gps and and mental health professionals that we've dealt with in the past like even prior to diagnosis of dissociative identity disorder are so like you said clueless to the fact that race plays a huge part in mental health because it's not it's not a simple it's not a simple issue and a lot of people you know a lot of white people see racism as something that is just completely directly hurtful and it involves you know a very aggressive acts of violence when there are so yeah. many different levels and intricacies to racism that yeah. all still affect black and indigenous people of color and the fact that in a profession that's supposed to be for helping people you would think that there's some sort of learning that they that they should be going through in order to do that yeah. but it's just so whitewashed and even a lot of the queer related things are so whitewashed it's as if being non-binary and just any other gender that isn't you know cis female or male it's like that it's only white people you know it's just a white people thing yeah it's really sad for me as well of feeling like i just i mean in general feeling like i don't belong anywhere but when sort of people kind of think seem to think and behave like um, being black and being queer are completely separate. So a lot of black people, you know, saying to me, but, you know, but you're black. How can, how can you be queer? You're black. Or, yeah, I'm a Christian as well. Mm. But being told to pray away the queerness, you know, not really helpful or being told to, pray away the um disabilities you know mm. yeah plenty of examples of stuff in the bible but there's also plenty of of disabled people in the bible as well and it's like being disabled or being queer is like the worst thing that could happen to you and it's like no i have a long list of increasingly worse things that can happen but it feels like there's no support in sort of church or, or religious environments and um, which are very ableist and very queer phobic for the most part and there's no recognition of um, race or religion or queerness in straight medical places it really mm. feels like i'm just too much and over the last couple of weeks it has felt really really awful of me actually trying to get some help for alcohol addiction, for um, eating disorder, and also just for general mental health and being misunderstood, seeing ignorance and an unwillingness to learn as well. You know, when you talk to a, a, any kind of medical person and you talk about something that they're not sure about or they don't know about, forget it you have just hit a brick wall they are not going to admit that they don't know something you, you mm. really get a wall of silence which uk medical um, 
health services are renowned for. They don't want you to tell them that they don't know something, even though you've lived your whole life with it. You know, they mm. may have had like a one hour session, which was uh, elective during their training, but you've lived with it. I've lived with mm. it for the past 47 years, but you're just not taken seriously. You're, you end up, they end up being very defensive or aggressive. Mm. I usually feel very, I keep wanting to say isolated, but it's not, it's alienated. It's not mm. just that I'm living on my own and I don't have any family and my friends are on the other side of London, but it's like that I've been made to feel unwelcome in so many places. And, and I have sort of seen in the past couple of weeks, finding out more about like the DID, the black and people of color DID and communities online sorry specifically on youtube and just sort of hearing about them and their experiences of racism from white systems and you just think oh, for goodness sake just just how i don't know when you're in the gutter and there's still people looking down on you who are also mm. in the gutter with you as far as stigma for a mental health condition goes it's like, I just feel, can you, can you not just be racist just this time with people who are treated like trash? Can you, mm. yeah, can you give it a rest just this once, but no. It just no, like racism. finds a way to like follow everywhere, like everywhere. anywhere and everywhere. There's always racism. Like you think that in a trauma community or trauma survivors that maybe just this one space, this is going to be a safe space. It's like, no when you try and point it out to these white systems, they just kind of don't want to hear it. They want to brush it off and just be like, but I'm a survivor of trauma, so therefore I'm exempt from being racist or all of these things. And it's like, well, no, you still need to hear, you know, black and indigenous folk out because <laughs> our voices still matter in this debate. It's not up to white systems. It's not up to white people to dictate what is and what isn't racist. Yeah. I saw a great post on Instagram. It was just a picture and it just said, your queerness does not absolve you of your racism. And I thought, yeah, you could like and change queerness to pretty much anything. It's tiring. And it's also, it's horrible. Part of the abuse, um, part of the non-sexual abuse was um, isolating uh, the victim myself and others as a victim of abuse because if you don't have friends you don't have any source of support you don't mm. have anyone to say this is what's happening um, and to feel like that now that I'm kept apart from other people because because of racism for the most part but also because of ableism because of ageism or just the fact that I'm not in the US it's just it's horrible. The, the resurgence of Black Lives Matter in the, in, across the world, it's, it is a bittersweet thing for me as well. For To be shocked at what happens to Black people is a privilege because Black people, like you said, it's our lived history. Um, being in the, the UK and talking about racism 
specifically racism in the queer communities and being gaslit all the time about that the fact that they're sort of waking up to it now it's that doesn't make me feel glad because i think about all the years all the energy and all the um, defensiveness and outright aggression that i've received for talking up or just existing in a queer space and now that they're realizing it's about racism it's yeah it hurts a lot and there's still a lot of people and it's very much the case in the uk but i kind of assume around the world as well that black lives only matter in the us it's only racism is only a problem in the us and they completely ignore now i remember hearing someone a white person say oh we don't have the police don't carry guns in the uk and it's like when since when did you need a gun to kill somebody and exactly, also yeah. in the uk we have a special thing called deaths in custody of like yeah there's some police stations you go in and you don't come out of them you just don't even you could go in and just report that your car's being stolen or something you ain't getting out and that used to mm. be the case for a london uh, police station in stoke newington that used in the 80s you know it always go past it but yeah that's the one that you never come out of if you're black you know but even the metropolitan police the london police force had this thing saying black lives matter and you just think that i just thought what the fuck are you saying you treat black your your the mcpherson's report states that the metropolitan police is a institutionally racist organization you don't have any black officers above a certain level and even when they they get to a certain level they're treated so badly that they just resign you still have your stop and search thing where if you're black you're it's something like 40 percent more likely to be stopped and searched on suspicion of a crime than you are if you're white don't mm. do not start saying in black lives matter while you're bludgeoning us over the head but it, it was just like everybody doing it and it's a trend mm. And even now, if, if I look online, it's like, yeah, there's not many people saying that Black Lives Matter anymore. And mm. so, yeah, that it only happens in the US. And even when there's US cases, that it only matters if you're a, a cis het black man. So yeah. black women like Breonna Taylor, who was like sleeping in her bed with her, with mm. her partner, got shot up by the police who was looking for another suspect who was already in custody in the police station but they killed her and there's there's no there's very few yeah there's very yeah they, they haven't been arrested but there's very little in the way of protests um about it when there's a black guy who gets killed which is terrible and mm. i wouldn't wish that for any black guy but is uh there's, you'll see pictures of massive demonstrations, which is good. But when the countless amounts of black trans women are killed in the US and around the world, you know, I think in the US they've probably got, it's, it's a terrible number, but I think if you compare it to places like Brazil, it's just off the chart. They don't mm. ever get the, they don't ever get protests and marches. 
well, very little apart from, from other trans people, from other black <coughs> queer people. We don't, you know, mm. we don't get marches or protests or anything like that. And that's, yeah, that's absolutely tragic. Mm. Um, even when um, people like Eric Garner in the US was killed for selling loose cigarettes and hearing a couple months later uh, a forensics person, sorry, somebody who deals with causes of death, but saying that he was a ticking time bomb anyway because Eric Garner was so overweight that he was going to die anyway. <laughs> yeah. A lot of what I saw is that people also seem to have this idea that if, and obviously in this case, you know, it's, it's not what happened, but is in if a black person is doing a bad thing that they still deserve to have a punishment. And it's like, well, no, like regardless of whether they were doing, you know, if it, anyone, but as in regardless of whether they were doing a crime or not, it still shouldn't mean that they have to die for it. And there's a lot of comparisons that I've seen as well. When a black person's done, done something, a white person's done something, you know, both the exact same criminal act that they don't have any previous history of um, violence or criminal acts or anything like that, but the black person is still punished more severely or killed. And mm -hmm. a lot of white people online are just excusing it of just being like, well, they did the wrong thing. So this is a punishment. And it's like, no, like, as in you need to understand I that it needs to be a level playing field with punishments. What I've heard, I mean, you can always tell what ethnicity uh, a shooter is. If he gets taken in alive, he's white. Yeah. Like, you know, uh, Dylan something who shot 20 odd people in a church. And, is that the one where the white. cops spoke to him and he just got to have a cigarette and just chill for a while? Yeah, and they sent out for burgers for him That's, and everything. Mm. But some, yeah, black person selling loose cigarettes gets the life choked out of him. Oh, I wrote a poem ages ago, um, and I can only remember a bit about uh, black people having paths and white people always having future. So when something really bad happens, oh, but, you know, he's still a young man. And I mean, it usually happens when it's something to do with sexual assault. Yeah, he did this bad thing, but he's got a future and he was studying at Oxford or Cambridge and, you know, it'll ruin his life. Yeah, fuck off. And also, you know, if a, a black person does something, oh, you know, he came from a broken home and he lived on a council estate and, you know, he did this petty theft in the past. And yeah, it's a completely different thing. There is never a level playing field with DID, because I'd only heard about it for its old name, and from horror films, I, I thought that I was going to turn out to be violent and horrible, and that's absolutely everything I'm not. Even before I, you know, got the diagnosis or anything like that, you know, I've never been a violent person, but I you know, I've actually got myself in trouble several times for trying to protect people, for trying to break up a fight um, or stop somebody from getting beaten up, you know, end up getting into trouble for that. It's just, it's just not, it's just not mean. I know it sort of seems obvious now, but I had such a fear that that's 
what was going to happen to me. And yeah, the media that I'd seen has, it was, it's all fiction, but when that's all you ever see, mm. it's like you've got no other point of reference that I believed that's what was going to happen to me. And it, now, whenever I pray, I, I always thank God for my altars, that they, they helped me survive long before I even realised what was happening. Now, mm. with the, I could, as a three-year-old, with the um, abuse starting, that I could remember, my earliest memory is of being uh, sexually abused when I was on my third birthday. That the, that the altars protected me at a time when I couldn't comprehend stuff like that. You know, no three-year-old is going to be able to understand what's going on then. I mean, yeah, the three-year-olds who still believe in Santa Claus and the tooth mm. fairy yeah. thing. So that my altars helped me to survive. Um, and that they're a blessing. It's, yeah, it's a life-saving thing to... Mm to have these altars looking out for me, really. It's, and I'm glad that that came along quickly after the fear of being violent, after the fear of being locked up um, and never let go ever again, that the altars, it really is a blessing. I think just to even survive, really, you know, where the damage that was done to the body, you know, the physical, damage of you know sadly some kids don't survive but somehow I survived and the altars helped it, it was just there was like because there was just no escape the uh, school home church that was the whole universe for me mm. never allowed to go anywhere else those were the three places and all three places were terrible and so, and also, like, I'd been drinking also from three years old. So, you know, just the fact that I could make it through infant school, secondary school and college. Yeah, just the fact that I got through all of that, that I'd, you know, be sexually assaulted and that then you'd have to be at the dinner table with the person who did it. And um, I'm actually just started to write something about um, trauma and tra time travel well mm. how how I for decades I had a very very strong interest in the whole concept of time travel and tra specifically travel to the past to change mm. things to stop the abuse from happening somehow um, but also but, but nowadays it's very much like how like you said the altars holding different parts of the trauma that you couldn't deal with at the time or even now but how for example Lizzie is stuck in 1972 and um, Larry and Monroe are stuck in the 1980s it's it's really it's nice that it's become a positive thing for me the whole mm. concept around time or positive a less negative a less wishing away wishing that things hadn't happened because when I was still wishing desperately that things hadn't happened and I hadn't been strong enough to change things and if I could only figure out the whole time travel thing
when I was still doing that, I wasn't accepting things did happen. I think awful things happened and I can't change it. Mm. And that I have, that things need to um, be dealt with now. And I'm just holding up the process, putting it off partly because things are, it's just so overwhelming and there's so little support, but also it's just um, accepting the past that people who are supposed to care about you did terrible things and gaslit you all the way. And they'd still do it to this day, really. Mm. They, that, um, yeah, it's, it's a lot. When, when it comes to the, the queer identity and how you have interacted, I suppose, in queer circles, because you, you said before as well that you have had some very negative experiences um, in regards to uh, them disregarding how race has come into play with like all of that. Have there been instances as well in which your alters have been at the at the front, um, you know, interacting in any of those spaces? Or I suppose my question would be, when it comes to queerness, is that something that you yourself resonate with? Or is that also something that as a collective amongst other alters as well, it's something that everyone kind of identifies with? Or how, how would you, I guess, describe um, that? Okay. Um, gosh, I, when I got diagnosed in 2015 and in 2016, I stopped being part of a lot of the queer spaces that I used to belong to because um, it was just, it was just ridiculous, not just for racism, but um, actually, yeah, mostly for racism, but for a lot of other things. Um, there's a thing called Bicon, which is a bisexual weekender and with like workshops during the day and parties at night. And that's like one of the longest running, or it is the longest running bisexual event in the world, but um, one, of, one of the longest queer events as well. It happens every year and every year they have different um, organisers who who deal with it and it's all voluntary and I stopped going to Bicon because in 2016 they had one of the organizers making non-binary and trans jokes as part of the entertainment yeah we had a quiz called is it a bird or a bloke <sighs> and that's one of the organizers and there is a lot of crossover between trans and non-binary people and bisexual people mm. um, and yeah, to have that on the first night's entertainment and lots of people complained about it, but he was right back again on the second day's, second evening's entertainment. But um, yeah, that was one year after I got my diagnosis and it like, no, it's not happening. And I was out as having DID to um, my partners at the time because I was um, polyamorous and very close friend. So I was out to like six people at that time um, because I, I just, I still had that very negative headspace about it. Um, I've since uh, written a lot about it and talked a bit, but not too much. But um, 
so yeah that was the end of the majority of my queer interactions as far as the altars go yeah I think Larry's right now is the only one identifying as as gay although Howard one of the older altars um um I think he's bi he, he, he just looks at everybody and he's leering after everybody mm. and it's it's difficult sometimes because it in my mind it feels inappropriate you know he's not touching anybody he's not saying anything inappropriate to anybody but sometimes the looking is it just feels to me not good but you know then it might be part of my kind of very religious um, in a non-accepting way background mm. of like to think about sinning with somebody mm. is to sin you know I don't feel like that nowadays but it's it's kind of got the dregs of that yeah it's it's strange when I just have such positive times with when certain altars come to the fore because Larry is also Larry and Monroe are very very creative and artistic and Larry um, remembered how to crochet um, about a year ago actually and I'd learned how to crochet when I was a little child but I hadn't done anything since I was about 10 and then mm. suddenly 40 years later Larry remembers how to crochet and suddenly I'm you know creating crochet toys I've got most of the Avengers <laughs> in the crochet form <laughs> you know I and Monroe is very much a designer, dressmaker. I've been really into upcycling clothes. I mean, getting clothes as a fat person is is tricky and expensive in the UK. Uh, so I don't throw my clothes out until they're practically worn through because it's so difficult and expensive to get new stuff. But, you know, when there's a hole in something or I've dropped a beetroot salad down the front of my white t-shirt you know mm. I can cut out that bit and use another bit of fabric to turn it into a dress but you won't you know I've cut away the, the stain and I've put a bit of tartan where the stain used to be and suddenly it's fashionable or it is in my head but Monroe mm. is very much um, someone who loves to do that and yeah Dave you know some of them have got behaviors which are dangerous you know it's or we put outside jack in the in a difficult position again that thing about heading back always trying to go back to my old family but you know there are other parts to it as well um about only feeling good if there's someone pretty much being abusive to me because that feels safe yeah, you know, that mm. feels to the to one of the altars to Forest Jack. That feels, uh, yeah, safe and regular, and mm. you know, but it could hurt outside Jack and all the other altars as well. Because mm. um, I, I suppose yeah, off. something that they they no, that's okay. I was gonna say I mean because I, I certainly can can relate to um relate to that to a certain extent. Cause, yeah, there are. Like even myself as well, but other authors as well in um, in the system that yeah because you're so used to being abused in some way, shape, or form during childhood yes. that those yeah. behaviors like responses to it are kind of just 
you're yeah you're used to it and that's what is your normal and so even when I look back at you know because I mean for ourselves I mean I'm like you know our body is 25 yeah 25 tomorrow even looking back at you know the two previous relationships that I've had I can now look back and see that a lot of the like a lot of that abuse that I went through in those relationships is very reflective and similar to that normality that I was brought up in, you know, during childhood. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I can certainly resonate with the fact that certain alters are going to, you know, just see that behavior as normal and just kind of cop that abuse because that's what they're used to. And that's what has been led to feel good, so to speak. And yes. anything outside of that is just frightening and abnormal and is weird and bad. Oh boy, yeah, it, it feels reassuring. It's a bit like with self harm, and mm. it feels like to have that physical pain. It's like, oh, okay. Sometimes it's a relief because mm. um, outside Jack doesn't know, or there isn't a aren't able to release that all those emotions in a safe way, or doesn't know how to. So yeah hurting myself physically that's that's reassuring that's something i can control and that's yeah Mm. i don't have to think about it it's all automatic but i know for myself there's a a lot of shame around um when abusive things especially sexually abusive things fantasies that i have turn me on you know it's there's a lot of shame around that and just this morning, I saw on Instagram the oh, the person, the system who had the the YouTube. Video. Oh yeah, is that Indigo Systems? There, um, un, yeah. uh, on Instagram, they're known as Unconventional Mum. That's it. Yeah, they yeah, had yeah. a very good post about not slut shaming survivors mm. because for for some survivors, being hypersexual is that's one of the results of being a survivor. Um, so is completely avoiding anything sexual but I still have a lot of shame when my fantasies involve violent stuff or abusive stuff mm. you know uh, that those were the only sexual things I had until I was 23 so it, mm. it's really hard to find positive non-abusive stuff and um, mm. arousing for me I really have to concentrate on it whereas the abusive stuff being arousing that just happened I don't have to think twice but Mm. it is I do have a lot of shame around that and yeah I mean and I usually end up worse for wear afterwards but it's it takes so much energy and I think that's something that people don't realize as well just how much energy it takes to to just be, to just survive, you know, without doing anything. Uh, I could spend mm. the rest of my life, which it feels like during quarantine, stuck indoors, but it's still an effort to, to not hurt myself when mm. emotions come up, to not, to not drink because that, you know, that was the way to, to feel better to not engage in risky sexual stuff it's just everything to to even mm. like prepare a meal 
that's going to be okay for me and not eating food that's expired or starving myself, you know, which also used to happen as well. It's, it takes so much effort and it's so, so tiring. Mm, because it, it just becomes like this, this huge cycle. And again, yes. especially when you have so much, you know, comorbid disorders and like so many different like symptoms it's like one thing from one disorder will tick off part of it a symptom from another disorder and it just becomes this huge thing and it's it's so misunderstood even by those in the community because while yes you know we all have a trauma disorder it's also that there are so many different things that have also influenced everyone's life up to this point and other people don't get that they're like oh but you know we're on a level playing field because we all have a a trauma disorder and it's like well no because the disorder is going to affect everyone in different ways because the just the trauma affects everyone in different ways and how other aspects of their life growing up whether it be you know that the trauma that occurred was you know uh, involving like a family friend rather than family so they had family support or like you know vice versa it's like it's there's there are so many different things Mm. Mm. and especially when you've got like gender identity in in the mix as well it can complicate things a lot and when like i suppose as well like from a um uh, from my personal point of view of having you know borderline personality disorder is that you know i'm sure you may also likely resonate with this but it's like having that extra element of intensity to emotions definitely makes it so so hard to kind of wrap your head around things in the moment when it's just like everything just seems like it's way too much and it's just like nope, I can't deal, can't cope with this, whereas a person without borderline personality disorder, for example, may be able to rationalise things a little bit more at that point in time. So like you said, it's it's very difficult at times to not, you know, turn to other coping strategies like drinking or like self-harming and things like that because the emotions are just so intense and you just want the emotions to go away or to direct them in a different way direction i think that's what going back to what you said at the beginning really about just medical people just not wanting to or not able to just take in that you've got more than one issue really and it doesn't have to be complicated if they bloody listen and not just write you off or not be defensive